How are we doing, church? Doing good? Great to see you. I don't know if you picked up on this. I've been to Israel. <laughs> so, uh, hey, grab your Bibles. We're going to go to Mark chapter 4. We're talking about storms and storms in our life today. As you're going to Mark chapter 4, uh, we just want to take a moment and say uh, happy Memorial Day weekend. And there are two people that have offered to lay down their life for you, Jesus and the American soldier. And they are not the same, but because the American soldier lays down his or her life, we can gather here in freedom to worship Jesus who laid down his life for us. Amen? Amen. And so, here at the Church of 1122, if you have a family member who's ever laid down their life for the sake of our freedom to you, we say we love you and we thank you. Gretchen's uncle died in the Vietnam War, and it's a part of, of sacrifice like that. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Also, if you are a veteran, if you have served in the military, or if you are currently serving in the military, then you have a friend and a supporter in the Church of 1122. And to you men and women, we say thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> and so today, when you get out of church and you go to the beach and you grill hot dogs and you do all that stuff, you know why we can do that as Americans? Because we can do that as Americans. All right, so enjoy it like crazy. Now, we're going to talk about storms. It does not take a theologian to realize the moment we start talking about storms in church, we're talking about the storms in your life. We're going to talk about what do you do when you find yourself in a storm. So Mark chapter 4, <clears throat> beginning in verse 35, starts out this way. On that day. When evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. He'd been teaching in Galilee, and they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee, go on to the other side. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose. In Greek, the word translated here, windstorm, could also mean hurricane. So this isn't just like a little bit of a choppy sea. This is a legit uh, storm. And it says, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, when you see that video, you say, man, that, that looks like such a common, peaceful place. And as I described on the video, the way storms could come out of nowhere <clears throat> is this. Uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee is about 100 feet below sea level, and Mount Hebron is about 1,000 feet above feet above sea level, so the cool air from up there comes down the valley into the warm sea. It causes the wind to go crazy, and out of nowhere, and that's what's important, out of nowhere, a sea can just erupt. A storm can just erupt. And what looks like calm sail to the other side, I mean, you can see the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is right over there. And what looks like just a little, a little paddle over, just all of a sudden can be like a, a life-threatening kind, kind of event here. And again, this is just, this is the little fishing boat. This isn't your 30-foot center console. You know, you can go to here to Europe in and back, all right? And you should take me fishing. But still, it's not that kind of boat, <clears throat> okay? This, is, this thing can be turned over. And they're freaking out because the water is legitimately coming over the side and into the boat. And these are fishermen, professional fishermen. This isn't their first little paddle boat experience, okay? They have been in this kind of situation before. But this one is so extreme that they are freaking out. So maybe, maybe you're in a storm. And you didn't see it coming. And, and one of the things that is least helpful in your life when you find yourself in a storm is those people that come along and tell you you shouldn't have taken your boat into the storm, right? By the way, Christians are so good at that. Christians are so good at coming up with a verse when you're in the storm and be like, hey, you know what's raining on you, right? So that is of no use. We're not doing that here. You know why? That sounds a whole lot like condemnation. And Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. And, and here's the thing. It is true. 
You're either in a storm, and again, that's all I have to do is say the word storm and you start getting all worked up. Or you're coming out of a storm or you're heading into a storm. So if right now you're not in a storm, well, God bless your weekend. I mean, enjoy it, all right? Eat an extra hot dog for me. Just hang out because here's what I'm just gonna tell you. It's coming. And you know how I know it's coming? Because Jesus said, in this life, you will face troubles of many kinds. That's one of the promises of God that we don't like to spend much time on. I'm telling you, I want an 1122 promise of God calendar. I'm going to sell it in the Bible bookstores. January, you will face trouble of many kind. That's it. Yeah, that's it. All right. Good luck. Get ready. Because it's just true. It's coming. For some of you, it's a marriage storm. And in your marriage right now, you're taking on water. You don't know if you're going to make it. And you, you feel like, you feel like the disciples. You're huddled up and you're freaking out and you're afraid. And rightfully so. For some of you, it's a financial storm. I mean, you didn't see it coming either. You thought it was a legitimate investment. And now you don't know how you're going to stay above water. For some, it's a relational storm. People that you thought you were going to be friends forever with, that you were going to spend the rest of your life with in friendship, they have just unfriended you from Facebook, and there is no greater windstorm than that, is there not? (laughs) Or a business deal go bad, or you lost somebody very special to you, or you're pregnant, and honestly, you don't want to be pregnant. And then the other side of it is, some of you want to be pregnant more than anything, and it ain't working out. And you feel like the wind and the waves are just crashing down. Or for some of you, you think it was a habit that you thought you had control of. But if you're honest, you're realizing that this habit has total control over you. And you are in a storm. And you feel hopeless and helpless. You see, I read the prayer cards every week. And here's here's the thing that I know some of you feel like. Okay, the reason that storm works in this kind of illustration is because the thing about a storm is it's wave upon wave upon wave upon wave. If it was just one wave, it wouldn't be that big a deal, right? You could take one wave on the head and then get, get your senses and be okay. But the thing with the storm is it just won't stop. The waves just keep coming. Like you ever notice they don't send you just one bill, do they? They never just send you one and be like, hey, just when you get to it, then, then uh, yeah, we know you got it. So no, what do they do? It's bill after bill after bill. And then the black letters become red letters and then the red letters get bigger. And then some, some dude from New Jersey starts calling you on the phone asking about the bill, Right? I mean, it just keeps coming. Or physically, when you're having a physical storm, there's not just one doctor's appointment. It's appointment after appointment after appointment after medicine, after procedure. And it just keeps coming. And as I'm, when, when I've been in these kind of storms and, and when, I'm, when I'm counseling with people or praying with people that are in those kind of storms, so often they'll just get to this place that they say, if I could just get one, just one moment of peace, I mean, if I could just, if he could just stop for a second so I could get just one moment of peace just to catch my breath. You ever paddle out in waves that are too big for you? You see, that's what you have to do when you're the lead pastor and half your staff surf. And they're like, come on with us. And be like, okay. And then you stand there. You're like, is this point break? What are we doing? Okay. And then you try to follow Pastor Ben Williams. And he's like a half a water bug or an amphibian or something. It's not natural. And he just, he's out there. And then you feel like, I'm going to need a John boat or a tow rope or something here, a little outboard motor or something. And then they start, and then you begin to think, if I drown in Jack's Beach, that will be embarrassing for my family for the rest of my life, all right, or their life. It's terrible. But what happened? That wave knocks you off, and it just won't stop. And you think, if it would just stop for a second, and here's what these guys are feeling. Here's what you're feeling. If I could just get that moment of peace. And so... 
Here comes the wind, here comes the waves. The water's coming over the boat, verse 38. But he, that's Jesus, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Well, of course he was, right? Don't you, wonder what the, the disciples are thinking? Are you kidding me? You're asleep? You're asleep? We're over here, we're about to die, all right? The waves are coming over the boat and you are asleep? You know, sometimes you feel that way in your own life. God, are you even listening to me? I mean, I'm freaking out over here and, and you've fallen asleep at the wheel of my life. And honestly, this was your idea. We didn't say, come on, Jesus, get in the boat. I'm pretty sure you said, come get in the boat. And I'm pretty sure you're in charge of the weather. So what is going on here? And then sometimes it makes it even worse because you meet some Christian and you're like, oh, God is so good. Just answers my prayers. Oh, really? What you been praying for? You know, I lost my keys the other day and I prayed, dear Jesus, please help me find my keys. They were still in my door. You're like, seriously, Lord, you're going to show up in all your glory with the idiot that can't keep up with the keys? And I've got like a real prayer request over here, and you're asleep. Now, if you look at it from Jesus' perspective, of course he's asleep. The wind and the waves, they don't bother him at all. Why? Because he knows he's in charge of the wind and the waves. And not only that, he knows that his, his father still has the whole world in his hands. And it is, it is not his time to go. Ultimately, ultimately, the amount of peace that you experience is directly related to the amount of trust you have in your heavenly father. And as that trust increases, that peace can increase. You see, I don't know of a better uh, illustration except when I was a kid going fishing with my dad, there was a whole lot of peace because I had a whole lot of trust in my dad. No matter what happened, no matter what we encountered, there was just not a lot of worry going on because my dad had it all under control. The reason I think that Jesus is not bothered by the storm is he totally understands that his dad has got it all under control. And so he's not afraid at all. He's asleep on a cushion. And they woke him. And they said to him, now, I think it's a good idea to go to Jesus in times of storm. You don't ever want to wake anybody up from a nap, though. Can we just all agree with that? And so they go to him. That's good. They woke him. And what they said, not so good. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing I mean, that's what they go with. Jesus, you're ever here taking a nap, and we're about to die. Do you not even care? Which, honestly, can be our prayer life a lot of times. The moment things don't go our way, what do we do? We be like, God, are you out of control? And what we can do is we can over-exaggerate our current circumstances and make some, some, some doctrinal um, assumptions about God. Like, we think, a lot of people think, if God doesn't cooperate, then there must be no God. Think about that. If that were true, no teenagers would believe in their parents, right? It's like, what do you mean? Well, I'd say, Dad, can I do this? And he goes, no, there is no dad. That's what we would think. <laughs> Cooperation has nothing, there's no evidence of existence. You see, very quickly, we can assume that an apparent absence on God's part equals apathy. Or that a, that a silence on God's part is like in a big eternal so what. I mean, I've heard people say all the time, man, I just... You know, I had, God's been silent. You want to hear the voice of God? Open up the Bible, read it out loud. You'll hear him over and over and over. But what we can do is we can look at a little three-foot circumference of our own life and make eternal judgments on who God is and his character and nature based on the storm that we're in in that moment. And, and be just like the disciples and say, do you even care that we're perishing Somebody sent me a text last week after I was talking about, about fear and faith, and they said a pretty good definition of fear is this. It's false evidence appearing as real. 
It's false evidence appearing as real. And so the evidence that they see is the wind and the waves coming at them and their Lord and Savior asleep on a cushion. And they come to the conclusion, God, maybe you don't even care about me. Verse 39. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. Now here's the way I think it actually happened, okay? This is, again, the Bible's over there. This is just the way I think it happened. I think they woke him up just like it says and I think he said exactly what it says he said but I don't think when he was saying these words he was looking at the storm. I think he was looking at the disciples. Like, can we just agree it's a bad idea to wake anybody up from a nap, okay? Can we just agree? Don't you hate it when people don't respect the nap? Especially when people wake you up to ask you a stupid question. They wake you up from a nap to ask you if you're asleep. It makes me want to punch them in the nose and ask them if they're still bleeding. Oh, I thought this was a dumb question game. Your turn again. Okay, here we go. Are you bleeding? So I think Jesus, I mean, come on, he is at peace. He is, he is, the, he is the personification of peace, and they are the personification of fear. And so you see the options you can go with here, and then they wake him up. And I think what he does is I think he points at the wind and the waves, but he looks right at the disciples, and he says, peace, be still. And then it says, and the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Where? Everywhere. I think the wind and the waves died down, and I think the disciples died down too. They were like, oh no, all right? You see, not only does he calm the circumstances, but he calms them down, and then he asks this question. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, I'm gonna teach this over and over and over and over because at least 366 times in the Bible, the Bible says, do not be afraid, or don't be anxious, or don't worry, or have no fear. And the opposite of faith is not doubt. You can have a whole lot of doubts. You can have a whole lot of unanswered questions. And you can have a whole lot of faith with that. You see, the opposite of faith is fear. Because fear paralyzes. And faith produces action. And that's what he's asking here. Why are you so afraid? Why are you paralyzed? Why are you letting your fears rule you? Because here's something that's just real. When, when we are faced with a whole lot of fear, we all become drama queens. You know that? We elevate all the circumstances around us. Like, I mean, earlier they said, do you not even care that we are perishing? Are you really perishing? Because I was napping while you were perishing. Are you sure your life's on the line here? And what fear can do is fear can cause us to just, just overestimate our circumstances. And say all kind of crazy stuff. Have you ever had a friend say, we, we need to talk. I need you. And you go and say, but what's going on? And they've been dating somebody for six weeks, and that somebody broke up with them. And from your perspective, it's one of God's greatest graces upon their entire life. <laughs> but in their mind, they're like, does God even care? I am perishing. I don't think you're perishing. We can do this. We can think that the current circumstance that we are in are going to define the rest of our life. We can all become drama queens. And we can overreact to the circumstances right around us. I think this is what they're doing. And when we do this, it, it, it leads to a paralyzing fear. And the opposite of faith is not doubt. If you've got a lot of doubts, if you've got a lot of unanswered questions, if you still can't figure out how God does this and why God does that, you have the potential to make a really great disciple. The disciples had a whole lot of unanswered questions, but what they had was faith the trust in God that he is who he says he is and that he always keeps his promises. And so, in this moment, when he says to them, why are you so afraid? 
Have you still no faith? Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so it gets a little bit confusing in English when it says, when Jesus says, why are you still afraid? And it says, and they were filled with great fear. Because there's one good fear in the Bible. It's the fear of God. And see, they are replacing fear for fear. Now, it's totally okay to be scared. Scared is a feeling. Scared is an emotion. And we know around here that our feelings and our emotions are not our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And so God gives us the emotion of being scared, but that's different than being afraid. Okay, to be scared is this emotion, but you can be scared and still be full of faith and step out in faith, and that's called biblical courage. It's like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, if you read that from our perspective, he looks like he's pretty scared. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night he's going to be portrayed. He knows he's going to the cross the next day. He kneels down on a rock. He cries out to God. He's so overcome emotionally that the Bible says he's sweating drops of blood. And he says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. See, he was scared to go to the cross to endure the full wrath of God for all of our sin. And yet, even with those emotions going on, by faith, he stepped out and he walked all the way to Calvary to die for us. You see, there's a difference. And when we replace the fear of our circumstances with a fear or a reverence for God, then all of our fears begin to melt away. That's what happens in Jesus. I think that's what begins to happen in these men right here, that they have a great fear of God. And they say to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So what do you do? What do you do when the storms in your life hit? I want to talk to you about four four things that I want to encourage us to do. I put them in your notes. I want you to follow along. One of the things, this one's just free, this is in, in there. I, I would avoid the people that tell you that you shouldn't have gone into that storm, okay? They are of no use, all right? But what we should do, it, I think we can learn it from the, this passage here. Put them in your notes, follow along with me. The first one is this. The first one is to look up. When you find yourself in a storm, look up. And what I mean by here is get your eyes off of the circumstances that are right around you and get your eyes focused and fixed on Jesus, that we are to practice the pursuit of the presence of Jesus. You see, if you got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 to 34. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and here's what Jesus is saying. He is essentially saying this. I think the most important verse in this passage is verse 33. But for us to understand verse 33, you know, you got to keep backing up, backing up, backing up. If you get to verse 25, it says, therefore. And anytime there's a therefore in the Bible, you got to see what the therefore is there for. So you got to go all the way up to 24 to kind of understand what 33 means. You with me? All right. Jesus says this. No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, if you try to focus your life on two things, eventually it will tear you apart. And what most of us try to focus our life on is, especially kind of the casual church attending Christian, is we want to put one foot in the Jesus camp and one foot in the my comfort camp. And the problem is when those two things begin to divide and the storms come and everything in our life doesn't go our way, it will tear us apart. So you, we've been on, our church is on a two-year journey, a discipleship journey, asking this question, is he before all things in your life? Is Jesus first? He is first. Is he first in your life? 
Is he before all things? Is he before every storm? Is he before every relationship? Is he before all of your financial security? Is he before all of your worry? Is he before all of your success? And this essentially is what Jesus is saying here. He says, nobody can serve two masters for either they'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Now, literally in Greek, it says mammon and mammon doesn't just mean the money. It means also the stuff that comes along with the money. In other words, are you serving your comfort or are you serving Jesus? Then he goes on to say this. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Now, how in the heck do you do that? Right? Has anybody just looked at you and said, are you anxious? Mm Mm-hmm. Stop. Okay. Nobody wants to be anxious, but he tells us how to not be anxious. He says, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Now, again, I've shared this before. He's teaching on a mountain in Galilee. And I think, you know, he wasn't at a Walmart. He wasn't at a sports bar. He was on a mountain. And I think birds flew by and he went, look at the birds. And everybody was like, oh, oh, look, there's birds. And he was using them as a sermon illustration. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. And everybody would agree with that. And he asked this question. Are you not of more value than they? Now, I know PETA doesn't believe this, but the reality is that you're more important than the birds. Now, I'm not anti-bird. I love birds. They are delicious, okay? And what (laughs) God would say to us is if you could interview a bird and say, birds, what are you worried about? Are you worried about where you're going to live? They go, no, not really. We sort of uh, constantly work on our homes And if that one gets torn down, we just build another one over there. I mean, we just do it all the time. Are you worried about where you're going to eat? No, not at all. We just get up in the morning and eat whatever God provides. Are you worried about your children? No, actually, right before they're ready, we just kick them out of the house. (laughs) Good luck, Martha. It's me and you again. That's kind of how we run our life. And if you could get behind the question to the birds and be like, well, why can you live such a carefree life? The birds would say, because our our heavenly father takes such good care of us. You see, we really trust him. And as our trust in him increases, our peace increases. And so he's totally taking care of us. And y'all are way more important than us. So how much more is our, your heavenly father going to take care of you? goes on in 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The answer, nobody. In fact, the opposite is true. Modern medicine makes it clear that worry and anxiety and stress will take hours off of your life. I mean, you cannot find an old guy and be like, man, how'd you get so old and healthy? Stress, anxiety, worry. Oh, yeah, I've just been working my heart for 85 years, and now it's really good and ready to go. No, it will kill you. See, Jesus knew. Don't you love it when science catches up with the Bible? And so Jesus says, who can add a single hour to the span of his life by worrying? And, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Here it is. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. You see, I think he asked this question because when the storms hit us in our life, these storms expose our fear or our faith. They expose what we are clinging to. And so he says, oh, you have little faith. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
Now, when he says, if he's, when he says Gentile right here, he, ba- he basically means just somebody that didn't believe that God is in charge. He's like, listen, if a lost world goes chasing after the things of this world, that makes sense. And when if their storms come, if they cling to the finite things of this world, that makes sense because they don't know that God is a heavenly father and he's still got the whole world in his hands. But what are you doing? You see, I thought you said that you believe that God was sovereign over all things. But yet, when a storm hits you, why are you still chasing after these other things that cannot hold you up? Why are you not clinging to the one true God who is in charge of every storm in this world? And essentially, what can happen to a lot of us is when storms come into our life, then we we can almost overnight become practical atheists. Like, not actual atheists. You believe that there's a God. We just don't act like it. I mean, that's that's what Jesus is kind of saying here. And think about it. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you're like a Bible-believing Christian, like I am, okay? I believe the whole book. I believe the red letters are actually from Jesus. I think he actually walked on water. He actually raised from the grave. I think Mary was a virgin. I think, you know, all those kinds of things. Think about some of the crazy stuff we say we believe. I mean, we can start at the beginning. That God just spoke into existence everything that is. And then he puts a man into the garden. And then he looks at it and he goes, that's not good. He's going to tear the whole place up. I need, he needs a wife. And so he puts him asleep and he takes a rib out. And then he, he wakes up and there is his naked wife. And he goes, whoa, man. And he sings a song, way to go, God. Okay, that's kind of a rough translation, but that's basically Genesis 2 and 3. And then he says to him, subdue and cultivate, multiply, fill the earth with babies. That's a good commandment, is it not? Praise God. And then what happens? And then a snake comes along and says, hey, what y'all up to? We're just hanging out, subduing and cultivating. How about you? Hey, you want an apple? We can't eat apples. All right, well, why not? Because God says we ain't supposed to eat two. Are you sure that's what God said? And they have a conversation with, with a snake. And people are like, yeah, that's what I believe. It gets crazy, too. Like Noah. Noah gathers up all the animals two by two. Come on. How did he do that? No, no, no. You leave. We've already got two of you. Get out of here. Sorry. Tough luck. All right? Come on. Get on the boat. How does that work? And people being resurrected from the dead and fire coming down of heaven. And we believe, conservative Christians, Bible-believing Christians believe that the whole thing ends up with Jesus returning to earth on a white horse with tattoos on his thighs. Sorry, Southern Baptist. And a sword coming out of his mouth. And people are like, you believe that? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so we believe all that, but you don't think God can handle your sophomore year at UNF? What? You believe God spoke into existence everything that is and breathed the pneuma of life into the human beings and created in his own image. Uh Uh-huh. But he can't handle your rent? What? What are you doing? It's like being a practical atheist. You say you believe in God, but believe doesn't just mean up here. Believe means to trust, to lean into, to have faith. He says, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need, not want, need them all. Verse 33, but seek, here's the whole verse I wanted to get to. What do you do when you find yourself in a storm? You look up. What does that mean? It means this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. So we are on this two-year before-all-things journey. The financial piece of it is just one sliver because Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But what it is, it's, it's, it's a holistic discipleship approach to say, Jesus, you are before all things. If everything in my world crumbles down, it's okay because I'm going to fix my eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of my faith. Sometimes God might send the storm to get your eyes off the storm and get it up on him. So the first thing that you do is you look up. My good friend, uh, Ryan Kwan, he's a pastor out on the left coast. He said this in a recent sermon on Jonah. He said, 
If you worship something finite, it can't help you in a storm. It will only sink with you. We need an infinite Christ who endured our storm. So the first thing, when the wind and the waves come, you gotta look up, look up to Jesus. The second thing is you gotta look around. And I don't mean look around at your circumstances. I mean look around at the people that God has placed around you. You see, you and I, we are not saved as a community, but we are saved to a community. That's really important. There is no Lone Ranger individual Christianity in the Bible. Yes, Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, but he saves you into a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that just because you're in a church that makes you a Christian. That's not how it works. I've told you this before. Um, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian anymore than sticking your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. It's not outside in, it's inside out. But we are saved into this family. And one of the reasons I think God calls us to look at the faith of the people around us is to get us through those moments of fear when our faith is faltering. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, it's one of my favorite places in all of scripture. And it's called the hall of faith. You see, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a roll call of men and women who by faith did all kind of great things and who by faith lost their life. But the point there is, is that they walked by faith. They did not walk by fear. And then when you get to chapter 12, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. In other words, when you hit the storm, look around a little bit. Look at the men and women of faith that God has put around you. And in particular in 12, it's saying, look to the forefathers whose shoulders we stand on. But he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Do you notice there are no singular pronouns in there? It doesn't say let me run my race. It says let us. We are supposed to do this thing together. You're like, what does that mean? Here's what this means. Uh, this, I don't know, a few months ago, I get, a, I get a message to me that a friend of mine here in the church, a guy named Rick Graham, that, that he's lost his job. And I know Rick pretty well, and he serves here at the church like crazy. And, and I think, oh, no. And my anxiety for him begins to go up. And so I get on the phone, and I call Rick, and I'm like, hey, man, you doing okay? And immediately, Rick says to me, man, I'm better than I've ever done in my life. I'm like, bro, that don't, that don't make any sense. He's like, yeah, I know. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's like I have a peace that transcends all understanding. I've never been closer to Jesus. I've never been surrounded by such a band of brothers that are helping me through this and praying for me. I just know this. I know that God is in control. He's not done with me, but right now I've got more time to serve. I've got more time to study. I've got more time to dig in. I am better than I've ever been. And sometimes when you find yourself in a storm, and you're like, where are you, God? And you look over at your friend Rick and be like, well, if you're doing amazing things in his life, then I know you're still at work. Or I think of a lady at our church named Lynn Montgomery. She was at the nine o'clock service on the front row. She's been battling cancer like a boss. I mean, she's far exceeded all the prognosis and the stuff they told her. She's been in round after round after round of chemo. Um, She told me after the nine o'clock service that one of the greatest graces upon her is that she hasn't lost her hair. Praise God, that's what she was saying. And so last week she came up to me and she said, yeah, the doctor said I shouldn't be standing right now, but, and I was like, you look great. She's like, I am great because if he woke me up today, he's not finished with me. And the reason she was thanking me is because I sent a family to work with her and her husband and this family currently in our church, they have a prodigal son who grew up in church and now he's running from God. 
And a couple years ago, that was the Montgomery story. Their son, I mean, honestly, he was just all jacked up. We were praying like crazy. And he's like a real life prodigal son, Luke 15 kind of kid. He was in the pigsty. He came to his senses. He came running home to the grace and truth of some loving parents. He got saved. Now he's on the mission field in Zambia. And so she's serving this other family by saying, hey, listen, when you, when you find yourself in storms, then you got to get your eyes on Jesus and you got to be surrounded by people. And I look at her and she's saying, thank you. Thank you for putting me to work. And she's battling cancer like crazy. And I see her faithfulness and I see the peace that she has when the storms are raging around her. You see, that's why it's important to look around. That's why it's important that you should be in a disciple group. So that when the storms come your way, you got some men and women around you that are helping hold you up when you don't feel like you can hold you up anymore. That is a grace of God that you would be surrounded by men and women of faith like that. So you look up, you get your eyes on Jesus. You look around at the men and women that he has put around you. And then next, you look ahead. You look ahead. Sometimes you gotta get your eyes off of your circumstances and you gotta get them up to the horizon of where God is taking you. Do you know where these men are going? When they land their ship after this storm, they're going to land on the seashore on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And they are going to encounter a naked man living in the tombs, cutting himself, and he's possessed by a legion of demons. Now, a little rocky boat ride is nothing compared to coming eyeball to eyeball with some naked cutting man possessed by demons. Do you understand? And maybe the reason that Jesus takes them through this storm is because he's preparing them, not even for that moment, but he's preparing them for what he has in store for them. That's what I mean when, when I say you got to look ahead. That God never wastes a hurt. That God never wastes pain. This bothers some people a lot. They come to me and be like, do you mean that God could use pain on purpose? Yeah, look at the cross. Isn't it, isn't it the worst pain in all of human history and it's the most glorious event that has ever happened? So yeah, he does it over and over and maybe the reason that you are in this storm is because he's not finished with you and he's what John 15 would call pruning. Now listen, I'm not much of a gardener, but I've seen people prune bushes and, and for my opinion, when I look at it, I'm like, I think you've messed this up because it looked okay and now I think you killed it. I mean, it looks terrible. What are you doing? You may have overdone it. But then what happens? In that next season, boom, it comes back bigger and better. And sometimes in our own pruning, we kind of feel like that. Hey, God, I think you're overdoing it. All right, you're cutting a little deep here. But it's essentially what God is doing is he's got his hammer and chisel out, and he's chiseling away everything in you that doesn't look like Jesus. And he's preparing you for what's next. James says this in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Now think about this. James is the brother of Jesus. This is a big deal, the brother of Jesus. And James, early in his life, did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. It was not until Jesus resurrected from the grave that he was convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, which makes sense to me, because I have a brother. Do you have a brother? What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God? I mean, if my brother came to me and said, Joby, behold, I am the Lamb of God. I was like, no, you're still a liar. Okay, leave me alone. So that's just true. But if he died on the cross and came back on the third day, I'd be like, I'm with you, bro. I'd do whatever he said. And so James became a believer late. He writes a book in the Bible. And you want to talk about living with storms. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother? I mean, can you imagine the pressure that your mom would put on you? 
Maybe getting back from school, be like, hey, James, how'd you do in school today? Oh, good. I got an A in Old Testament. And how about you, Jesus? I wrote the Bible. Awesome. <laughs> James, what are you going to do with your life? I don't know, Mom. How about you, Jesus? I'm going to redeem the world, make all things new. Right? Kind of tough. And so here's what James concludes in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, <clears throat> count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Think about that. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That when you begin to get your eyes off of the current circumstances that you're in with that storm and you get it up on the horizon a little bit and you begin to understand, well, God's not through with me yet. The, the Bible says in Hebrews that only the illegitimate child is not disciplined by their father. And discipline doesn't mean punishment. It means like discipleship. That God may love you so much that he would be willing to not just sign the sunshine on you, but also let the rains and the winds come to develop in you the kind of perseverance it's going to take to give him glory. Can I just tell you this too? God might be sending you through this storm because people aren't going to watch you on your couch that much. People aren't going to watch you when life is just kind of in neutral. But when you have a peace that transcends all understanding, even in the midst of the storm, you know how attractive you are to this world to point them to your heavenly father? That's what it means when in Philippians it says that we would have a peace that transcends all understanding to guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Another thing that's just true, I don't know anybody that's ever made life-altering decisions sitting on the couch on a Saturday afternoon, well-fed, watching the golf channel. I just don't. Usually, it's not in comfort that people are like, you know what, I need to change everything. It's typically when the waves start coming in. And what if God is using that storm in your life to shake you up, to help you get on track, and he's preparing you for something greater, and not only greater in this life, I mean, it happens all the time. God could use the storm of your marriage and heal it one day so that you could help other people have healed marriages. He does it all the time. But what if he also wants you to get your eyes off of the horizon and up into your eternal future? Do you realize that if you are a follower of Christ, that you are a co-heir with Jesus? Being a co-heir with Jesus means this, that you are in line to inherit everything, everything, everything. It's so much bigger than we can get our minds around. That's why you just sit there and be like, okay, cool, everything. You don't even get it. Me either. It's hard to get our minds around. Um, John Newton, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, he gave this illustration. He said, he said, this is what the Christian walk is kind of like. Imagine that you got a letter from the king that you had inherited a hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars. No strings attached. This isn't like from Zambia or one of those things. This is like legit, okay? Yet you are inheriting $100 million, and all you have to do is get in your carriage and ride to the castle, and the money is yours. And you got in your carriage, and you're on the way, and you can see his manor, you can see the kingdom, and then about 300 yards from getting the $100 million, then the wheel of your carriage falls off. What would you do? You wouldn't care. You'd be like, I can walk from here. And you wouldn't walk. You would hop out of the carriage and you would sprint there and that carriage breaking down would be meaningless to you. Why? Because you have inherited $100 million and it's waiting on you right now. And he says what, what most Christians do is they sort of grovel and limp their entire way thinking, oh, poor old me in my carriage. 
as opposed to fixing your eyes on the $100 million that you are about to receive. And listen, in the span of eternity, you know how long your life is? I mean, it's like that. And if I'm wrong, it's like that. That's how quick it is. Whether you make it 70 years or 170 years, in the span of eternity, I'm telling you, it's just quick. And if you were in Christ, not only is he going to calm your own internal storm, but he's going to make all things new and all the storms will go away one day and you and I will inherit it all. So you got to get, you got to look, you got to look up at Jesus. You got to look around at the people he surrounded you with. You got to look forward to what he's calling you to. And then lastly, you got to look back. And I mean this in a couple of ways. You got to look back over to your shoulder and see how faithful God has been to you in the past. I mean, the greatest determiner of what somebody's going to do in the future is what they've been doing in the past. And so ask yourself, how faithful has God been to you? Several months ago, I asked every single one of us to write down a gratitude list and to write down one thing that you're thankful for for every year you've been alive, okay? We, we shared some of those at our elders' retreat last week. We couldn't do them all because, you know, it's like 7,000 years or something. So just the young guys went through them real quick. But here's what that does for us. It just reminds us of the faithfulness of God over and over and over. It's why in the Old Testament, every time God would do something significant, he would tell the people, hey, put together a little altar of stones and remember, remember what I did here so that in future generations, when kids would see it, be like, dad, what's this all about? He'd be like, oh, son, by God's mighty right hand, he saved us here at the Jordan. But not only that, not only do you look back at your recent history, you need to look back 2,000 years to the cross. The reason that you and I should never look at Jesus and say, teacher, do you even care that we're perishing? He goes, of course I care. Here's how much I care. For God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, that Christ died for us. That that one event rules over every other circumstance that you and I will ever face. And so look up and look around and look ahead and look back. Here's the point. Oftentimes the storm in you is greater than the storm that you're in. And Jesus can calm them both because he has overcome your storms. Here's how Jesus says it in John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That when Jesus went to the cross and he stood up on those nail-pierced feet and he says, it is finish. That that counted for you and that counted for me. And that meant that the storm in you, the storm in you could be calmed because Jesus himself is the promise of peace. That peace is not a set of circumstances. Peace is found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only that, that one day he will make all things new and every single storm that has ever been will be calmed down. And what if? And what if God is actually sending you through the storm for his glory and for your joy? What if he is sending you through the storm to stir up some stuff in you that would never be stirred up by your own comfort? And that he would be glorified even in that. If you look up, if you look ahead, if you look around, if you look back, you would say, you know what, that storm would be worth it. That storm would be worth it if it drives me to Jesus. On Thursday night, after 722, this guy came up to me that I kind of know. Met him a few times. Uh, I did his wedding. And um, he's, he's a great guy. I can't remember. Maybe a year ago, maybe longer. I can't remember. But, and, and what's unique about this wedding is um, when I show up for the wedding, our wedding coordinator, Miss Nita, says, hey, listen, I just need to let you know, 
um, this guy's a double amputee, and I didn't even know it. I met with him before, but I didn't know it. He, he lost his lower legs on, on both legs, and, and she said, so just, just know, it, it was an outdoor wedding. It's kind of unstable ground, and she's like, just be aware, and just know that he's not like walking in with a swagger when he walks. That's just how he, you know, that's just how he walks, and so I was like, holy moly, so I get to talk to him a little bit, and, and I, am, I am overwhelmed by, by men like that, by men and women like that, and I just have such a gratitude, and I tell them all the time, look, man, you're a hero. Because you do what you do, I get to do what I do. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So every time I see him, I call him hero, and, and then also I'm glad Miss Nita told me because at the best part, when the, you may kiss your bride, he went to like sweep his wife over, and he kind of started to lose balance. And if I didn't know, I'd have just been like, oh, man, tough luck, you know, man down. But I grabbed him and Tin Hut soldier, and we got him back up and all as well. I don't think anybody knew. And so just incredible guy. And it's also cool. He met his wife uh, through the Wounded Warrior Project. She worked there, and he was a wounded warrior. Talking about, like, being devoted to your craft. I mean, that, that's extra special right there, right? So anyway, they're married, and they moved somewhere else in Florida. But I saw him, saw him on Thursday night. And, you know, sometimes as a pastor, I wonder... Is anybody listening? You know, I talk about look up and look around and look back and all that. And is anybody even paying attention? And so he sent me this email late on Thursday night because I saw him. I said, hey, hero. And, and we talked for a minute. And then later that night, I get this. I get this letter. And it says, Pastor Joby, it's great to see you after the sermon Thursday. Thank you for the support, but I'm no hero. Jesus is the hero. I wasn't sure I had time to tell you the story, but your four things to do in a storm were exactly what I did in an episode of Choppy Seas in my life. I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but now it makes sense as to how I came through it all okay. After I stepped on the landmine, see, we use the word landmine like a metaphor. We talk about going through storms like, oh man, I thought I was going to get some money back on my taxes, and I owe. That's the kind of stuff that we are all stressed out about. See, this, this is different. And he says, after I stepped on the landmine, I tried to control the situation. And I was shouting orders from my back and trying to make sure everyone was doing his job to evacuate the casualty, who happened to be me. Look up. I remember surrendering control when I looked up at the beautiful blue sky over Afghanistan. And I said out loud, you got this. You got this, right, God? And about 10 seconds after I spoke those words, an F-15 fighter jet flew directly over me. And when I say over me, I mean it was less than 200 feet off the ground because of where I was laying. I wouldn't have seen the plane if it didn't fly directly over me. But God put it right on top of me as if to say, yes, son, I've got this. I'll never forget the feeling of surrender and then instant peace at that small display of God's power. Look around. After surrendering, I took a look around and my platoon was doing just as they were trained. My medic had stopped my bleeding, my sergeant was on the radio, and before long, a helicopter came to pick me up, which my men tossed me on. It didn't escape me at the time that the outcome of the blast could have been much worse. The only parts of my body that were injured were my two ugly feet and unimpressive calves. That's funny. <laughs> but that didn't prevent me from feeling a bit sorry for myself. Look ahead. At some point before surgery in the combat hospital, I said, Hey, Doc, does this mean I can be taller? 
which is how I am now, artificial six foot one. Praise God. <laughs> to all men wanting to be more than six feet tall, I do not recommend this strategy. <clears throat> Looking back, a couple of months in the hospital, I realized, number one, those were never my feet. Those were gods that he loaned me for 24 years. Number two, everything in my life led me to a six-inch patch of dirt 7,000 miles away, exactly where he wanted me. And number three, he was actually protecting me, shielding me from many other negative things that afflict many other veterans. What did I do with these fleshy feet for his kingdom? Nothing. But he lavished his love upon me by giving me artificial pairs, and I need to get to work with what he has given me. I fully believe God can put the flesh feet back anytime he wants. I don't know if he will, and I definitely don't deserve them, but he, if he does, I pray I'm not my old five foot 11 because my wife has a six foot minimum height requirement. <laughs> Great to see you. What if? Yeah, amen, amen. <clears throat> So whatever that storm is that you think was an accident or whatever that landmine that you used metaphorically and me too, what if God is actually in charge of all the storms and all the landmines? And what if God has led you into this place? Check this out. How glorious would it be for God and how joyful for you that he stirred up your whole stinking life, whether it was in your marriage or finance or physically or whatever, so that you could get to the point where you could look up to see him as Lord and Savior of your life, where you could look back, where you could look back and you could see that he demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that he died on the cross that you could look ahead to a purpose that God has created you for and even beyond that to an inheritance that you would inherit all things and that you could look around and he would surround you with brothers and sisters to help you get through every single storm that you go through. It'd be worth it. It'd be worth it. So I ask you, do you know him? Do you know him? You see, because here's the difference. If you go and you tap Jesus on the shoulder now, he's not napping. He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he is eternally praying for you and for me. And if you tap him on the shoulder and say, Lord, I need your help. I am in a storm, and you are the only one that can bring me peace, then you will be met with grace and truth. If you'll admit, if you'll admit that you've been the boss of your own life and that ain't working, and if you'll believe that when he died on the cross, it counted for you. And in this moment, you confess, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I surrender to you as my Lord. That you could do that in this very moment. Would you please close your eyes and bow your head. And I would say, if that's you, and today for the very first time, you are ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. If you want to admit that you're a sinner, believe that when he died on the cross, he counted for you and confess him as Lord of your life, then just raise your hands and say, God, here I am right now. I surrender to you. Our good and gracious heavenly father, Lord, I thank you so much that you are both the giver and the calmer of the storms. God, that you are sovereign over all things. That though, God, though our feet may fail us, you will never fail us. And God, when we put our trust in you, God, you will not allow us to sink because because you endured our storm on our behalf before your glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, would you please stand as we respond? We're gonna respond the way we do all the time, but please don't miss it. We're gonna respond by singing kind of one of our favorites around here. We're gonna sing the song Oceans because the words of the song are the words of the sermon. 
And we're going we're gonna to respond financially by bringing our tithes and offerings, our first and our best to God, because he first loved us by giving us his best. That we declare, Jesus, you are before all things. And we're going to respond by praying, by casting all of our cares upon him, because he cares for us. And again, when we pray to him now, we are not awakening him from a nap, because he does not sleep or slumber. But he is waiting for his children to cry out to him. We do that by coming down here to the prayer rails and praying. However you need to respond. Let's do so.